Advent when we uh, light the, the pink candle representing and calling our attention to the joy uh, in regards to Christ's incarnation, uh, not just his incarnation, but the life of Christ in general. Um, as I mentioned last week, uh, it's, it's always been the, the most challenging of the, of the focuses of Advent for me because um, of the solemnity I feel in it uh, in the coming of Christ, anticipating all that Isaiah 53 foretells uh, 700 years before of the sufferings of Christ and, and then the, the weight of knowing in some ways that uh, it is for my sins uh, that he is being wounded there and subjecting himself to the mockery and the horrors of, and the curses of crucifixion. And so when I come to the third Sunday of Advent and speak of joy, that is the most hard, most difficult for me to, uh, to feel and to grasp sometimes. And so I wanted to begin this morning with what I call part confession, um, part prayer request, and part praise. Um, and it is this that about four o'clock this morning, um, God connects things for me sometimes in the strangest moments, but I realize something about myself. I, I, am, I hold some reservation in pursuing Christ as fully as, I, as my, even my heart wants to. And the reason I noticed that is because I began to realize that the reason that reservation is there is because I know, I know that if he becomes that satisfying to me, I won't have a place here. Uh, this world is already feeling like I'm alienated from it in my pursuit of Christ now. And if he becomes more of all to me, then my fear is that my alienation in this world will produce in me a despair that I've known before. Uh, and that is a dangerous place to go. So that's, that's my confession. My prayer is that you would pray for me that the Lord would abolish every reservation in my flesh and let me pursue him with all that I am. And if that makes me a pilgrim in this world and a man of sorrows myself, and if that means the rest of my days are lived in grief and longing to, as Paul says, to be present with Christ, which is far better, though he seemed to almost yield to his uh, plight here because he had become convinced that it is instrumental to God's work in their lives. But he seems very much to have preferred going on to be with the Lord. And I don't know about you, but if you've ever thought along those lines, uh, there are things here that I do love. My family, obviously. My church, very much so. The people that I gather with and I grow in the Lord with, I love them very much. And so there is a sadness to me in not being there with them. So I think that's what produces for me this reservation that the Lord just pointed out this morning and said, you know, you're like this, Larry. <laughs> and, and I had to say to myself, I knew that. Uh, I just needed to hear you say it. And so that's my confession, my prayer request. And it's also my praise because God speaks. Uh, he's alive. He's real. And you may share some of those reservations. And to be honest, 
I hope you, I hope you get that far. I hope your pursuit of Christ brings you into a relationship with him to where he becomes desirable enough for you that you are contemplating whether or not you ought to pursue him with all that you are. (laughs) Because if you get there, then you're going to feel this way. And so I pray for myself and for you that we'll not only get there, but that we'll go farther. Uh, And the subject this morning of joy uh, comes to bear very much on that on that line of thinking, and I think is perhaps what God was doing there. I, I had Matt to uh, print this sentence out and post it for you because I want to, uh, when I was in school, they used to uh, force us to say, make a ser- sermon in a sentence. If you can't reduce your sermon to a sentence, you don't know your content. Well, this is my sentence, and, and I hope the sermon will explain to you more precisely what I mean by this, but the glory of God is both the prerequisite and produce of our joy. Now, some of you who are maybe uh, follow the desiring God, you hear Piper talk a whole lot about joy and our satisfaction in God. And I, I mentioned the shorter Westminster, Westminster Catechism here, which is the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And so in my mind, I'm, I'm trying to work out And God helped me in regards to articulating it, but I'm trying to work out and say in a meaningful way how my joy is related to the glory of God and in front of my joy, how his glory is related to my joy. And the conclusion you ought to draw is that you can't glorify God without joy and you can't know joy without seeing the glory of God. That's what that means. You and I have been trying to find joy at Christmas separated and excluded from beholding the glory of God. And we failed. So we substituted things to make us feel emotionally happy. Gifts, gatherings, songs, environments, Christmas lights and parades and all sorts of things, and the product of that is that we're more miserable than ever because we somehow it is woven into us to, to find joy and to pursue our own joy and our happiness, but because we do not behold the glory of God, we try to satisfy that inherent woven-in desire in everywhere other than in the glory of God, and we inevitably and will infinitely fall short of that. And for some, they'll occupy themselves a lifetime and never feel the lack. Others, they'll try it for many years and slowly the misery encroaches upon their own heart till in their later years they'll find no joy at all at Christmas and they'll become bitter to Christmas altogether. I don't want to celebrate Christmas. I don't even want a tree this year, I've heard people say. I'm convinced that the reason for that is that you've never beheld the glory and therefore never had the joy. And God is not pleased and content to let you be satisfied with finding joy in anywhere or any source other than in him. That's my introduction. Let me pray. Father. Thank you for your word.
Thank you for your goodness and your grace, Lord. Thank you for speaking to my heart. Lord, I was thinking in the back of the sanctuary, the passage where Jesus instructs, Father, that uh, to the disciples for what they heard in the dark proclaimed from the housetops in the light. In, in some ways, Lord, that's been my experience that you say things to me in private study and meditation. And Father, not all of those things I can articulate, but Lord, help me this morning to articulate those things which you have spoken to my own heart because I'm convinced they are necessary for the joy of the people here and, and by a result of that to your glory. Help us this morning as we open your word. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. In regards to that glory, it's where I want to begin in Romans eleven thirty six. I shared this with the young people this morning. For from him and through him and to him be the glory are, are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. And I was sharing with the kids, there are three things involved in regards to the, the, the last declaration. To him be glory forever. Why? Because all things originate with him, in him. All things come into being through his agency. And all things and the end of all things, the thing for which they have come into existence is him. He is the recipient of all things. The the object of the all things that are ongoing, <laughs> that originate with him. That's all inclusive and exhaustive. That's why the glory belongs to him. Not just today, not just at Christmas, not just at Easter, but every day, in every moment. And then Paul says, so be it. In 1 Corinthians 10, 31, Paul writes, Therefore, whatever you eat or drink... I had fun this morning. I went with the kids through, through the idea of what you have for breakfast this morning. Families, I know what your children had for breakfast. A fruity pebble or fruit loops or something like that. And a toast, a Pop-Tart, bacon. Made me hungry. So I went through them. We had a lengthy discussion about their meals. I asked them what they drank. And then I asked them, at any time during your partaking of those things, eating or drinking, did you become conscious of the glory of God? And they were honest enough to say, no. And I was honest enough to say, most of the time, neither do I. But then Paul doesn't leave us there. Okay, so we failed in the area of our eating and our drinking. But he goes further. He says, in whatever you do, now he's made it serious. I can't get by with just forgetting about God and feeling guilty when I eat and then I drink. Now I've got to think about, am I mindful of the glory of God on display or being, or being brought to my attention in the doing of all things? And I press that to the point of thinking is a verb. And it involves the doing of something. So I understand Paul's command here or his his. Uh, injunction to be in all things, whether you eat or eating or drinking or all things, whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. And I reduce that to even my thinking. And that means maybe even a conscious awareness beginning today or tomorrow 
Just, Lord, help me to be mindful of the thoughts that pass through my mind and help me to screen them through this filter that is looking for and seeking your glory in the midst of that. And if it is not there, then help me by the grace of God to reject that and push that out of my mind as not glorifying to God, therefore becoming glorifying to God. (laughs) In the discipline to rid myself of anything that is not glorifying God. I take it to that extent. In fact, in Romans 3.23, did you realize this? You ever thought about this? Uh, The essence of sin is to fall short of the glory of God. I mean, that's the essence of what sin is. It is to, it is to fail in some aspect of life and thinking and behavior and in all these things. It is to fall short of the glory of God, which is, which is, which is from Him, through Him, to Him are all things. We're to do all that we're doing to the glory of God, to fall short of that, not only the doing of those things, but the realization of the glory of God present in that way. To fall short of that is the essence of what sin is, which concludes us all under sin. Uh, Those young people and myself and perhaps you, as you were eating breakfast and having your beverage this morning to quench your thirst from a night's sleep, if you did not become aware or be mindful in the moment of the glory of God in that, you have fallen short of the glory of God. You've not seen it there. And I think in that we are guilty of sin. You may say, well, that's rather minor compared to adultery and and all sorts of things and theft and murder but it's still falling short of the glory of God. And who knows whether or not a pattern of life built upon that may in the the long run manifest itself in murder and adultery and theft. Falling short of the glory of God. I was thinking as well in Revelation, I think I was reading somewhere this week, but I'd never, when Jesus is described as the Alpha and the Omega, I'd never... I never thought of that in the context of the glory, the passage in uh, Romans there, and also in Corinthians. I never thought of it exactly in that context. I understand that it means I am the beginning and the end. But it ties well together with that. All things are from him, through him, and to him. He is at the beginning of all things, and it is glory involved. And at the end of all things, it is glory that is there. And everything in between should redound to the glory of him. He is the beginning, the origination, and the destination of all things. That's Alpha and Omega. And that's who Christ is. And so... The glory belongs to him forever and ever. Amen. I wrote this in my notes. All of creation find its origins and its terminus in him. To what end? To the display of his glory. I shared last week at the, at the nativity when the announcement is made to the shepherds. In regards to what's happening there. They say it's this good news of great joy which shall be for all the people. And then he goes on to talk about a Savior being born and and, uh, and the angelic host gathers around there and what is their declaration of that event as they're looking upon that event and beholding that, they identify that as God's highest glory. 
And I shared last week of the glory that sparks in the hearts of believers when we look into the universe and we see all the marvels of creation and our hearts are lifted up in, in praise and worship to the God whose glory is manifest in such a way. The angels see far more of the glory of God than you and I ever see And those angels who have been witnesses to the glory of God manifest throughout creation look down upon this dusty earth in a dirty dirty stable in an animal's trough and they see a child laying there in human flesh and they say, that's the highest glory. So it suggests to me at least, and I could go on and on, that there is something significant about the glory of God that is necessary for you and I to behold. In Hebrews 1.3 says of Jesus that he is the radiance of his glory, the exact representation of his nature. And I thought this as well. At Christmas, listen carefully to what I'm saying because I don't want you to misunderstand this. At Christmas, we mark the coming into the world of Christ, as should we. Yet be careful that you do not miss the Christ who comes into the world by focusing on the event of his coming. Do you know we borrow the date for our Christmas celebrations, right? From the pagan calendar. It's not likely that Jesus was born in the winter time at all. We borrow that date. And so, and whatever you think of that, it does give us an occasion to contemplate the incarnation, which is an important part. But what's significant about the incarnation is who it is that's incarnated. It's God. So don't get caught up on the 25th of December and, and the each year coming around yearly as celebrating the event. Focus on the person arriving in the event. That's where the glory is. The angels wasn't surrounding the shepherds and saying, oh, what a wonderful afternoon this is and a glorious date this is in history. It is that. It is all of that. But what their focus on was the glory of the one coming into the world here. He is God. He is God. So be careful that we don't get caught up in the the observance of the date and miss the one who came. In Luke chapter 10, verse 1 through uh, 10 through 14, you can turn with me there, just a couple of verses from that. Just a couple of observations in regards to Luke 2. And I'm picking up at the announcement of the angel, verse 10. The shepherds were there abiding with their flocks and the angel appears to them and says to them verse 10 do not be afraid behold I for behold I bring you good news of great joy which shall be for all the people for today in the city of David there has been born for you a savior who is Christ the Lord this will be a sign for you you will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger and suddenly there appeared with them the angel with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among men with whom he is pleased. Five quick observations from that. Number one is this is good news. This is news initially for the people. I was thinking to myself, it's not, it's not good for everybody. 
And it certainly isn't going to bring joy for everybody because Jesus himself will say, think not that I have come to bring peace on the earth, but a sword. And he goes on to talk about how families will be divided and hostilities will rise because of the person of Jesus Christ coming into the world. The religious leaders who were, should have been the ones most anticipating him were certainly not rejoiced at the presence of Jesus, although they might have rejoiced had they understood he was the Messiah. So, so it can't seem, it doesn't seem to me that the, that the, that, that the goodness of the news and the joy is to, is to be everyone's experience. I think he means here that the, that the announcement goes to all the people. This is a message for everyone. There is a Savior born. That's the news. And that news itself pertains to glory. That's the second of those points. The good news for all the people what is the good news? It is that a Savior is born for you. He is necessary for what follows. Another observation is that this Savior, He is God's glory. That's the, that's the announcement of the angel. Look there in the manger, the Savior who is born to you. When you go to see Him, you'll find Him this way. And when they, when they identify that that's where He is, then the multitude gathers around and they make that great declaration, glory, glory to God in the highest. And in this Savior, there is a reconciliation unto God, which I think ultimately picks up the last point, is this redounds or contributes or becomes the fountain of the joy that he speaks of. It's good news of great joy, but without the Savior, who is God, who is the glory of God, the manifestation of the glory of God, there won't be any joy. And so it's like the angels are saying, Pay attention here to the glory because it's significant for you in order to see the glory of this to have a Savior in whom you will see, behold the glory and from whom the joy will flow forth from your heart. That's the announcement. That's the announcement. So I conclude from that that glory and joy as he describes it, are inextricably joined together. I can't, I can't have one unless I have the other. In fact, I can't have the one without the other, and I can't manifest the other without the one. It is a true joy. In John chapter 15, verse 11, Jesus says this, and this is what really set me on this path. Because I'm thinking, well, what if I don't feel joy? What do you mean joy? He says it's a good news of great joy. What's the joy? Is it just joy that I'm supposed to feel? Something I'm supposed to conclude? Some, some capacity of the mind and the heart to look at that event and be touched by it and feel happy? What, what kind of joy should I be on the, on the lookout for or on the lookout for the absence of it? Jesus gives me the answer. John 15, 11. These things, he says, prior to all that he's spoken in 15, these things I have spoken to you. Why? So that this is what struck me. My joy. Not your joy. Mine. Don't, don't look at the nativity and the glory of God on display and go looking for your joy. Anticipate in this my joy. That's what I want to put into you. The joy of Christ. 
I have spoken these things to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy might be made full. So that tells me that I, if I'm looking for joy other than the joy that Christ knew, then I'm looking for the wrong joy. And if I'm looking for the joy that Christ knew, I must find the source of the same joy. I must, I, I must find out what it is that produced that joy in Christ. And that set my heart to flying through the Scriptures. And it is so overwhelming that I'm stunned that I ever missed it. Because he says clearly... If you're out seeking your joy in, the, in horizontal terms, in circumstantial terms outside of you, you will always find yourself coming up short and tending towards despair. But I've got a joy that if put into you will be a, a fountain of joy. And so profound was that joy. In fact, it is the beholding of that such joy that assured Christ's endurance upon the cross. In Hebrews 12, 2, it says clearly, For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of majesty. So Jesus had a joy beyond the cross, beyond the present suffering of the cross and circumstances, that a, a joy of seeing which so motivated him and drew him that he was willing to endure as an innocent man, as it were, the suffering of crucifixion and the mockery and the shame of it all. Why? Because that is a superior joy than my earthly happiness and comfort in this moment. That's the joy. That's Jesus' joy. Is that your joy at Christmas? Probably not, but probably because you've been looking for it in the wrong place. You've been, you've been getting cute Christmas things and doing the environment up to producing yourself a certain feeling that you could assign as joy. But it's not a joy that would send you to a cross. It's not a joy that would let, look, let you look upon the, the executioner's sword and say, far be it from me to withhold my life from this one, my joy. And Christ went to the cross not so much looking at the cross, but looking at the joy beyond that. Beyond that. Here's something that, that I'm still working out, but maybe it's a thought for some of you. Because I think to my, I've heard people say, well, his joy was, his joy was saving people. And I, and I share with Hope this morning, because we were talking about that, and I'm not disputing that. It's certainly linked to his joy. But I thought to her, well, I don't know if I can have that joy, because I, I can't save anybody. If the salvation of souls is my motivation for suffering and I can't save the souls, there must be something beyond that for a motivation for me to, to have Christ's joy because I can't die on the cross. And even if I did, it wouldn't save a soul. But what is it about the salvation of sinners that brought Christ so much joy? The glory of God manifest in doing such. That's what brought him joy. That's what he was looking ahead to. Yes, the cross was necessary for the salvation of sinners. There is born unto you today a Savior because that's exactly what you need if you're going to have any joy. That's what he's saying. 
And the glory, that coupled with the display and the angelic announcement of the glory of God in its highest manifestation is right there before you. All those things working together suggest to me very strongly that what Christ was looking forward to as his joy was a John 17 ultimately, but his reunion with the Father and the glory of the Godhead manifest once more in the salvation of sinners. And by the way, in the holiness of God displayed and the glory of God displayed in his holiness and righteousness and justice in the condemnation of those who reject Christ eternally. It is the glory of God. It is transferred to us. By faith. Jesus says, I want you to have my joy. I want you to have it to the fullest. I want it to be made full in you. Romans 15, 13 says, Paul concludes that with may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing. I take that to mean that the process of the joy of Christ being transferred into me is through faith in Jesus Christ. In the believing that the God of hope in believing transfers the joy of Christ. He makes me rejoice at what Christ rejoiced in. So that suggests to me that if you're apart from Jesus Christ and apart from the faith today, no matter how happy you are at Christmas, you don't know the joy announced at Christmas. You cannot because you're not beholding what Christ was beholding. You are not valuing most highly what Christ was valuing most highly, which was the glory of God. So it's transferred us to by, by faith. It is also the goal of Christian ministry. Uh, to summarize that, in 2 Corinthians 1.24, Paul writes this, We are workers with you, what? For your joy. That's the, that's the heart of Christian ministry. Paul is essentially, in fact, he says to them, I'm not coming to you now to spare you. And then he answers as though they were thinking to themselves, oh, who does he think he is? And, and all of a sudden he answers back and says, no, we're not lording it over you. We're workers with you. We're involved with you and, and ministering to you for your joy. What does Paul know about the joy? In fact, he goes on in that passage to say, for in your faith you are standing firm. So joy in that and their working for that joy in those believers has something to do with maturing and deepening faith. He knew that maturing and deepening faith would reveal to them more fully the glory of God and in seeing the glory of God, their joy would rise. I'm working with you this morning for your joy. And you believers who are ministering to others, you're working with them for their joy. Ultimately, and here's why, this is certainly for me, here's why. Because your joy is a display and a manifestation of God's glory. I want you to be full of joy, having beheld the glory of God. Because when the joy is flowing out from there, it redounds back to Him. He is the Alpha and the Omega. You see the point? So I want you to be happy. At Christmas, I want you to be full of joy, but not joy as this world offers, but joy that can only come by faith, through grace, by beholding the glory of God, by looking at the nativity and seeing that child in a manger and exclaiming with the multitude of the heavenly host, the highest glory to God. And in John 17, I was struck 
again by John 17 of Christ's prayer before going to the cross. John 17, 13, Jesus says to them again, these things I speak in the world so that they may have my joy made full in themselves. And if you go on and back up and read in that chapter, the number of times Jesus makes reference to the glory of God, to his own glory, to their recognition that he has come down from God, come from God, and their recognition that he is returning back to God, Over and over and over through John 17, Jesus is emphasizing the glory of God. Read it. Father, the hour has come. What does he say? Glorify the Son. Notice the hour spoken of there in John 12, 27 and 28. When Jesus was about to go to the cross, he says there, My soul is weary even unto death, anticipating the, the, the sorrows as it were ahead. And then he says rhetorically as it were, he says, But what shall I say? For this hour I came into the world. And here he's acknowledging that hour, it's here. And in that critical, pivotal area for or hour for all of humanity. Father, my prayer is in that moment, you glorify the Son. Well, how was he going to do that? By the cross. By the cross. By the one upon the cross who, for the joy set before him, was enduring the cross. Knowing the cost, knowing what he's about to take upon himself. Go back and read Isaiah 53, fulfilling every aspect of what Isaiah is prophesying there. That is the Christ doing his work upon the cross. But what was carrying him and driving him through that horrible work upon the cross was the glory of God on the other side in the redemption of sinners who themselves would praise the glory of God. Ephesians, all through chapter one to the praise of the glory of his grace just running through a list there quickly in John 1 there verse 1 the hour of glory in verse 1 again the glorification of the son by the father in that sense in verse 1 again the glorifying of the father by the son In verse 2, the glory of Christ's authority to give eternal life. Verse 2 again, the glory of the Father who has given them to Him. Verse 3, the glory of eternal life. I love this. He says to them, this is eternal life, that they might know the Father and the Son. That is eternal life. Sometimes I think we we think we just believe and believe and believe, and, and, and the great benefit of that is that we just don't never die. We don't have to die. And we say, hallelujah, I don't like dying. And so that's eternal life. Jesus came to the cross so I don't have to die. And that's the extent of what we understand the work of the cross be for. But Jesus says, this is eternal life that they may know you. Why? Because he is full of glory. And you don't see glory unless you do know him. And if you do know the son, that is eternal life. In verse 4, there's the glory Jesus describes of an accomplished work, I think ultimately culminating in the death and resurrection of Jesus. In verse 5, there's an eternal pre-existing glory of the Godhead. He says, let me come back to the glory which was mine with you before the world began. Jesus didn't get glory somewhere along the way. He was glorious 
by His very nature and being. And He laid aside that independent prerogative to exercise His deity and took upon Himself the flesh of a man, as it were, and lived and went to the cross and came all the way full circle back to the glory that He had with the Father before the world began. Glory, glory, glory. In verse 10, Christ's glory manifests in His uh, his disciples. He prays. Verse 11, the glory of their union with Christ. Verse 13, the glory of the word spoken to him. He says in there that their joy might be full or be made full. It is the joy of beholding Christ's glory in verse 24. I know my time is short, but let me conclude with this. If you don't see this today, you want to know why? Do you really want to know why? Did you know that of all the things our adversary could deprive you of, what is the one thing that he would deprive you of most? You're beholding the glory of God. You hear me quote it all the time. The God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving. Why? Very specific reason he gives here. There's a reason why he has blinded your minds. So that you will not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. Not just the love of Christ. That's part of the glory. That's a, that's a facet of the manifestation of the glory. But what he doesn't want you to see is the glory of Christ on display in his love and mercy and sacrifice and all those things. That's what he don't want you to see because he knows desperately that when you see the glory, your joy rises up to the glory of God. Do you think Satan didn't hear his comrade fellow angelic beings Surrounding the manger declaring glory to God in the highest. And about the message of good news and great joy. Do you think he's unaware of that? I don't. But I think he knows that's what has to be concealed from you. Lest you see the glory and become and, and be joyful in that glory. And therefore with your life glorifying and with your joy glorifying God. In verse 6, he goes further in that passage in 2 Corinthians 4, 3 through 6. But he says, it is also the glory of God in the face of Christ. So there's two things happening there. He's blinding you to the light that is shining from the gospel in regards to the glory of Jesus Christ, the one in the manger, the one upon the cross. But he's blinding you to something even more significant, and that is the glory of God in the face of that same Jesus Christ. You look at Jesus, you don't see the glory of God. You hear the gospel, you don't see the light of the glory of Jesus Christ. Why? Because he has blinded your mind so that you don't understand it. And you know what you and I are absent of without that understanding? Joy. True joy. I give up on counterfeits for that long ago. Even if I find something I am temporarily preoccupied with that makes me happy, not far down the road, I just recognize the emptiness of that in the long run, and I thank God for a superior, unending, everlasting joy. And recognize that the only way that I can have that at all is by the grace of God through faith in Jesus Christ, whereby the veil is lifted and I behold at Christmas and at Easter and in our functions together as the body of Christ in the preaching and in the teaching, the glory of God. So here's the question this morning.
Is that a joy that you have? Is that a joy that you would like to have? Or do you recognize this morning that you've been pursuing that sort of joy in all the wrong places? I'll confess something to you to seek out and to search out and to and to discipline ourselves to be in the Word and to be in, in a state of prayer that we might see the glory of God is a laborsome thing, especially to the flesh. You don't like spending that kind of time in that seriousness of thought and spiritual contemplation. We are loath to do that in our flesh. But thank God that the Spirit and mercy of God provides for the believer through the indwelling Holy Spirit and the truth of His Word. That's one of the things Jesus said. I've spoken these things in the world so their joy might be full. So get in the Word. He's spoken something essential for your, for your joy. And what He has spoken all through John 17 is of His own glory and the glory of the Father. I love it at the end of that chapter in John 17. You know what Jesus says? I desire this. He's speaking to the Father. I desire that they whom you have given me be with me where I am. Why? So they might see my glory. Do you know that's why joy in heaven is infinitely never-ending and never, never boring? Because you're in the presence then of the infinite holiness of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so the, because there's no obstruction and no blindness to the glory on display, there is no limit to the depths of joy. That's why I don't think there'll be a need for a cabin in the woods or a fishing hole or a golf course. God forbid there'd be one of those there for me. No need for that. Why? Because the glory of the Lord will be the sun, as it were, of that place. It will be the radiance emanating in the presence of God. And that will feed the soul of the believers and fulfill the longing that he was created with. And that was to behold and to, through his beholding and through the rising joy of that, himself become a reflection of the very glory of that God who called him into existence. That's why I want you to be joyful. Because if you find joy rooted in having been exposed to the glory of God by the Holy Spirit, then your joy itself will become itself an instrument of praising and glorifying the same God. You see the circle? That's why the Alpha and the Omega struck me so richly this week. I began this with my glory and, this, and through Jesus Christ displaying it to you and through the joy in your heart that rises up in you in that display, which itself comes right back to me. I am at the beginning of this, and I am at the conclusion of this. I am the origination, and I am the destination of this glory, of your joy. I just, I don't know about you, but that leaves me, you may not believe this, but almost speechless. And to think that we're observing Christmas and all around this world, People will get caught up in the traditions and they'll have those moments with family and all those things and all those things will go away and they'll somehow or another just still feel like they missed Christmas. I know that because I experienced that for years. Whatever I could do to try to make this a, a good feeling time, whether I held to nostalgia or tradition and all those things, whatever I did, However satisfying it was in the moment when all the lights were down and the tree was gone and all the, all, the, all the elements were removed, I realized that this heart that was designed for joy was left empty.
because it never beheld the glory of God in Christmas. And it's just, it's, it's indicative of the hardness of our own hearts when the angels themselves of that moment say, glory to God in the highest. And we race past that glory and think we ought to be joyful. Not going to happen. But thanks be to God through the cross, through Christ, the cross, the resurrection, and through the ministry of the Holy Spirit, it can happen this year. We can know at least taste of the joy. And back to my original point, don't be fearful of that, Larry. Because when you taste of that, you, you, you are more drawn to behold his glory than ever before. And the more his glory becomes the satisfying thing of your heart and the, pro- and the producing or the origination of the joy in your heart, the more alien this world will become. And in some ways, in my case, the more despicable and, and viewed as a hindrance to the fullness of that joy in my life. And the more you'll be wanting to leave this old world. Fear not. You'll go when his time comes. Uh, I've always thought of Elijah, uh, or not Elijah, but Enoch in the Old Testament. You can stand with me because you're standing and remind me to be quiet. But I always think of Enoch in the Old Testament, but it's just said of Enoch, that Enoch walked with God and he was not. I've always had the imagery in my mind that Enoch walked in such fellowship and communion with God in the absence of such besetting sins in his life that his transition from this life into the presence of God was so seamless that the writer would make a commentary there in regards to his departure that he was here and he was not. So I don't know why I would be fearful of that other than I'm still relying in some part on my flesh. And if you're fearful of that, that's probably true of you too. But Jesus has come to deliver us from that. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the truth of your word, for for the liberty of your word. Lord, I pray that we won't go away from here today thinking that we can somehow bind ourselves through some list of rules to experience this glory, but that we might rest completely upon Christ, Christ incarnate, Christ life, Christ's death, Christ's resurrection, and Christ's even now intercession. And we would be wholly dependent upon you for this revelation and this beholding of this glory that is so transformational in our lives. And Lord, I do pray that our joy might be reflective of having seen your glory and that might itself become a contributor to that. Lord, I just want to acknowledge here before your people that we are not making you more glorious, but that we are merely more deeply and profoundly in proclaiming and declaring the glory that is yours from all of eternity. Have your way in the hearts of everyone in this room at this moment, Lord. Lord, show us your glory. We ask in Jesus' name for his sake. Amen.